Hey, Richard Mullane here. You're about to hear a podcast recorded at the start of 2020 when fires were burning up millions of hectares in Australia's landscape. Only a few weeks later, and COVID-19 is presenting us with a different type of crisis. But around the world, as governments go into crisis mode and communities adapt and try to stay connected with information and each other, many of the aspects of the conversation you're about to hear are becoming more and more relevant. The Hassel designed Perth Optus Stadium, for example, like the gymnasium at Yale and the Welsh National Rugby Stadium, has been converted into an emergency response centre and temporary care facility. It's exactly this sort of flexibility and resilience in our infrastructure that you'll hear us advocating for in this conversation. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm Richard Mullane, a principal and urban designer in Hassel's San Francisco studio. Since 2017, major wildfires have burned across almost 8 million hectares of land in California. Thousands of people have evacuated, hundreds of homes have been lost. My home state of New South Wales has just had extreme fires that burned an equivalent amount of Australia, including areas around Sydney. This has all taken place just since last October, and there too, those fires have claimed lives and property. So my entire career I've spent designing for communities, neighbourhoods, city precincts and public and shared places that support communities and allow them to thrive. I'd just moved to California when the Tubbs fire happened. I was working on a Rockefeller-sponsored resilience planning project there and I remember watching smoke spread from the Tubbs fire across the North Bay as I stood on Twin Peaks. Here in California, I've met Greg Kochanowski, an architect, studio director with Rios Clemente Hale in Los Angeles, and I wanted to talk to him about designing for resilience in a world where this risk is growing and, and what we as designers can do for these communities in a rapidly changing climate. Hi, Greg. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I was trying to think how we met just to sort of do an intro here. How did we meet? We were introduced, I think, through... Uh, collaborated architect and realized we had a lot in common. That's true. We got nerding out on resilience and planning. And <laughs> it's just like ridiculous. All that stuff. We did that project in Houston That's true. Uh, yep. for Resiliency 2020. Uh, and I think we speak the same language. And it's really interesting just through circumstance, I guess, that the fires in California and then the fires in Australia have given us more commonality and more to talk about. And when people ask you, Greg, how would you define resilience? You know, resilience is really the capacity for an environment to recover. And so in Southern California, um, you know, all of the fires primarily have been man-made. And we have a relationship to the land in California that although, for the most part, it's a very liberal state and we're very environmentally focused, we have a policy of suppression, really, and, and thinking of the landscape as something to be battled against. Uh, rather than really the people who settled initially in California, the Native Americans, had a much different way of thinking about the land uh, in which they managed it and did control burns for agriculture. It's another similarity with Australia, yeah, because Indigenous Australians also had that sort of connection and those skills. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said about that in terms of thinking about ways forward. I mean, this topic's also personal for you as, as well as being professional. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happened to your family during the fire a few years ago? 
Yeah, sure. So my family lives in the Santa Monica Mountains, just north of Malibu. And during the Wolsey Fire in 2018, on November 9th, we were notified to evacuate. And so we packed up and drove out to Burbank. We lost our our home in that fire. So, you know, we started to piece together what had actually happened to the community over a series of days. Um, but out of 217 homes that are part of the community, we lost 110. Wow. Um, it's an interesting thing being an architect and going through this. It's become a kind of a life, sort of a life mission now to study these issues and uh, find better ways of developing in the wildland urban interface. So I wanted to bring in environmental reporter and a friend of mine, Molly Peterson, since Molly has some uh, really valuable real-world experience with people on the front lines of California's natural disasters. Hi, Molly. Hey there. Bring us a different perspective. Get us out of this designer's headspace. You've covered <laughs> all sorts of disasters like floods, hurricanes, heat and wildfire. Um, you started covering Katrina. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I wasn't just an environmental reporter there. I was covering schools and courts and housing and insurance and all the things that have to be rebuilt in a community after a flood, after a hurricane. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things that I've taken from Katrina that apply to all these other kind of natural disaster and climate change challenges in California that apply to heat and how heat affects our old housing stock to covering fires. And who are the sorts of people that like that are most affected by these events? I mean, who are you talking to mostly? So with these disasters, we know that there's a social vulnerability that comes from different factors. It's things like, uh, you know, in Katrina, people died uh, who were old in the campfire in Paradise in Butte County in Northern California. People were 72 on average. Uh, when it comes to heat, it's people who can't afford air conditioning or can't afford housing that has some sort of insulation that was built at the right time in a good way. So so money and finances and access figures into all of it. And an event might be, you know, sort of something that takes place over one or two days. But I, I assume that, you know, the stories span much longer periods of time and, and it really impacts people's lives over a huge extent of time, yeah? One of the first people I talked to after Katrina was a friend of mine who lived on Esplanade Ridge in mid-city New Orleans. And uh, she knew from her burglar alarm that her door was open. And she knew the water had risen, but she didn't know how far. And the water was high in that city for weeks. So people lived in agony for weeks at a time. And I know that's the same for people who live in fire-prone areas where they scatter and they may not be able to get back to see what's happened to their property, to their neighbors. And I wanted to ask you about that, Greg. Like, how did people connect after the Woolsey fire? How did people connect in your community? Well, it was... Um you know, I've never been a proponent of Twitter. I've never used Twitter. Um, my family and I lived on Twitter for for weeks, but really, it was the it was the it was the input of information that we really needed. So it's connecting to people, but it's also what the heck is going on. And um, in that situation, what you're looking at is is my house gone or is it there? Or are the roads closed? Is the highway still blocked off? And technology is something that we don't think of that often in disasters. I think at least as designers, we don't. I mean, I hear stories like Greg's a lot because people are scattered from their communities and they're looking for answers.
there's a, an Australian, former Australian senator who just went through um, a similar thing happening to his community in the south coast in Australia, and he described the emergency centre and seeing his community sort of look after each other. And I think his quote was, this is what community should feel like. My understanding is that for those who go through these events that they really rely on those connections. Was that your experience? Yeah, you, 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 it's essential. I was very relieved that I lived in the community that I did. I sort of got a little bit obsessed with uh, some old photos and we were doing our work in San Francisco looking at um, how public space was used after the 1906 earthquake and mm. photos of the Presidio filled with tents for temporary accommodation and you know, temporary churches and schools mm. and, and then again seeing that same phenomenon like during the North Bay fires a few years back when the Sonoma Fairgrounds was sort of like this place for people to come together, get vitally needed services and I already mentioned the similar space in Australia. I mean, just how important do you think public space is for communities in terms of resilience? Oh, I think it's critical. I mean, it's um, I mean, because again, the term resilience cuts through in many different ways. So, from a from a resilience standpoint, just in terms of the formation of the community, it's that place where the community gets together. I think, in terms of environmental resilience, it can become those places that, if they are within the heart of the psyche of the community, those can be places where people go to to gather to that might be get them out of harm's way. I mean, in, in California, for example, that place is the beach. Yeah. The beach was that place that everybody went to. And I think it was similar in Australia. Absolutely. Yeah, in Malakuda, people were evacuated off the beach there. Yeah. So that experience clearly changed the way that you would design uh, a community in a site like that. And a lot of, I feel like a lot of that's not very well understood the public places that we have are bound by rules and by structures that we put into place a long, long time ago. Our rules for how we've organized our public places and our cities and our communities were put into place in California during this era of massive public works projects, concretization, uh, dams, and uh, freeways. And we are bound by those decisions now. And I'm wondering what that does to your work, both of you, um, as designers. How do, how do you build resilience into something like that? Well, I think this sort of goes to, to what Greg was saying about how we define resilience, yeah, because a, a, a concrete levee or a dam is, is, is very inflexible. <laughs> you know, it might survive one event, but it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't adapt to a changing climate. And I'm interested in... Uh, how we can better invest dollars in communities, in building social resilience, in building connections and allowing people to respond and survive disasters and self-organise in how they change the form of their own communities, you know, to be better placed for future disasters. And major infrastructure projects don't don't deliver that, particularly if they're single-use infrastructure projects. Yeah, you were showing exactly. me some photos of of some pretty amazing concrete infrastructure. I don't even know what that thing was. What was that uh, thing? Debris basins. Yeah, yeah what the hell is a debris basin? <laughs> well, it's, um, it's this, it's a, it's essentially, it's a big bucket. <laughs> it's a big concrete bucket that sits at the bottom of the mountain. And what do what, they do? What are they there for? Well, what they do is they catch debris. So Los Angeles is really unique in that, well, I don't think it's unique globally, but it has a problem where fire... It has a sort of a cycle to it. Then the rains come, 
then those rains, because the hillsides are burned out, uh, the, they create landslides or debris flows. Wow. And so uh, soil comes off of the mountains during an event and more or less pile up there. And then the interesting part about them is that the city expends an enormous amount of energy and money to maintain them. The difficult part of it, and this gets back to the issue of the kind of singular nature of some of these and the hardening of infrastructure, yeah. is that mountains want to connect with the ocean. That's the natural processes. Yep. Um, and so as we interrupt those processes through debris basins and by building communities up against them, um, then we have to come back and actually do all these sort of enormous amounts of expenditure to kind of maintain that system, where if you created a softer system like what you're talking about, maybe there's another avenue through which you create more resiliency, more protection. Maybe yeah. it has more than one use, possibly. Absolutely. Yeah, that's more multivalent. So is that an example of climate change making design more urgent and, and kind of raising the stakes for what you're doing? Climate change puts everything into question. It reveals... Uh, it reveals decisions that were made in the past that you can't really, you know, replicate anymore. Uh, those were models that um, believe, believed that infrastructure was a kind of a singular entity. And like highways deliver people, debris basins capture material. They're uh, fixed solutions for, yeah, the, for what are not fixed problems. Anymore. Exactly. And so as climate change is rapidly changing and actually as climate policy can't even keep up with the amount of change that's happening in the environment, our infrastructure needs to operate similarly. And I, I'm kind of hopeful that this is, you know, the design is a little bit more important. And when I, I think we're talking about a different type of design thinking. We're talking about a more holistic design right. thinking, not engineers leading this process because as we've talked about it's inherently it's a social challenge yeah as well as you know sort of an infrastructure based one i tend to think that resiliency is born more out of ground up processes than top down processes i'm listening to you guys talk about how you're influenced by and thinking about things in the face of these climate driven disasters these fires and something I've noticed by talking to people in communities after these fires is that people feel more engaged and empowered. I mean, this is a community that's in some trauma, and it, people take it really personally. And so they want to step up and participate in this process more. Is that something, Greg, that you're seeing in your community? Yes, I think so. In fact, in our community, we're, we're, we're forming a fire safe council. Uh, and educating people. And part of actually the rebuilding process is uh, an, an education process. And that education process brings people together to share information and share experiences and kind of grow the intellectual capital of the community to, um, to make it more resilient. Yeah, and that process also connects people to each other. In, yeah. I mean, like um, something that we've talked about, Molly, is San Francisco, the city of San Francisco puts resilience dollars into, you know, connecting communities with each other. They do it through a program that allows communities to run their own block party. And it's not something that you think of as a resilience measure, but uh, the outcomes of themselves organizing that event are that they know each other. They know where the most vulnerable, the older people are or those who live alone or with right. disabilities. I mean, this is kind of important stuff to know about and, and it becomes far more important when you're in the middle of a disaster, yeah. 
Something I've noticed is that when disasters, these disasters break things down, these flaws in our design are revealed to us. There's this moment where people feel empowered to participate, where they're looking at each other, they're looking for answers from their local community, from the people who are helping them design their communities to survive the next fire. So what's the best thing a designer can tell people in that circumstance? It's funny. I think one of the the best things that a designer can do is listen instead of tell. A lot of the solutions are kind of already there. And it's the role, I think, of the designer in that situation to help make connections for people between things that they might think don't really matter or aren't connected to each other, Um, and then to bring in external information to help support that or supplement it in a way and bring it maybe to a level that they couldn't realize themselves or couldn't envision themselves. I think one thing is that if we put all resilience plans, traditional resilience plans to the side for a moment, you know, infrastructure-led things, engineering-led things, and we look at design as a process and how it can be part of this ground-up movement, I think there's a lot of potential for design to start with raising awareness and for it to be much more engaging with communities, yeah? So for it to be about outreach primarily, about education, and then for it to sort of pass tools and processes on to communities to self-organize their own responses. Yeah, I would agree. I think sometimes we feel as though we're going to come in and uh, tell people kind of, here's your here's our brilliant idea how to solve your problem. And as much as we are educating them, it's a process of us being educated ourselves. Greg Kochanowski, Molly Peterson, thank you so much for your time. I'm Richard Mullane. This is Hassle Talks. 